Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Uh, really excited for today's episode, but uh, before the show starts, I wanted to quickly remind you all that we are on Patreon now. If you want to head over to www.patreon.com backslash Conquering Columbus, and there you can help out the podcast via small monthly contributions, and you get cool rewards for different levels of donating, so please go check it out. We also want to take this time to thank our sponsors over at AWH. If you want to learn more about them, they are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. And they have over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications. Uh, They're focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. To find out more about AWH, check out awh.net and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Uh, Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well. And uh, we can trust to deliver high quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the store behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out maxeffortmuscle.com. All right, let's get this episode rolling. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 23 of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Nicole Dunn. And for a little background on Nicole, since 2008, she has served as president and CEO of the Women's Fund of Central Ohio, a public foundation that is creating gender equality and influence in the community. She's a frequent speaker and panelist on topics such as women's leadership, philanthropy, and nonprofit best practices. After applying her licensures in alcohol and drug treatment and prevention with the founding of a high school for youth and recovery in Minnesota, Nicole moved to Columbus in 2001. She began her nonprofit career community work at the United Way of Central Ohio, before becoming the YWCA's Director of Development. She is committed to strengthening her local community as a proactive leader of change. And let's start this interview off by asking Nicole, uh, what exactly is the Women's Fund here in Central Ohio, and what does it do? Yes, so the Women's Fund of Central Ohio, by the way, hello, thanks for the invite. <laughs> and we are um, a nonprofit foundation, so which means that we're a grant maker. We are just 15 years old, so we're young in the world of nonprofits. But the Women's Fund of Central Ohio exists to create gender equality and influence. At our core, we advocate for women's issues around gender equality. 
we convene the community to educate on awareness of things that address equal pay. Um, the, and, and then our grant making is to we raise money and fund grants of other organizations that serve women and girls, specifically around social change efforts. So getting beyond direct service where it serves one person or one family input output, we want to get to the issues that can prevent the issues from happening in the first place and then create recovery and resiliency on the back end. Um, and then the last piece that we do is that we'll commission research to figure out exactly what's going on locally and then build the capacity of knowledge of those that are influence makers, decision makers, and other nonprofits that are doing the work. So just out of curiosity, and what we want to eventually jump into is talk a little bit about your background and then how you ended up at the Women's Fund from there and then branch more into um, what you guys have going on. But with the local research, um, do you guys do that just so centrally in Ohio? Is, is Ohio like just a really good place to conduct things like that? It's such a good image of what the rest of the country is like? Um, well, for us, because so there's 165 women's funds on the globe. We're all independent and autonomous. And what we want to do and what we recognize is that oftentimes for nonprofits, it's you're taking national research and then trying to figure out what's the correlation locally. For us, we recognize that that was a niche for us to say, hey, no, what is different about Central Ohio or how are we similar to the nation to compare and contrast and benchmark? Because if there's things to celebrate or we've got something that's working, our goal is to figure out how do we make more of that happen. So often it's easy to find out what's wrong with, with a problem or with a nonprofit work, you address an issue. Um, but at the same time, it's how can you find solutions to things? By For us, we want to apply a gender lens to an issue. So how do we ask the question to say, how is this different for women or girls? Is it different? And then by asking that question, we think that we can figure out a solution that isn't universal. So for us, it's just how can we localize it and make it relevant and pertinent to whatever that we're doing? Because then you can't really excuse an issue either. Like, oh, that's someplace else. We want to say, no, this is actually here. This is our girls. This is about the women here. This is about our families, our schools. That's very cool. Right, and I think people find it really easy to deflect that sort of thing. Like, oh, well, that doesn't happen here. You know, I mean, and, you know, I guess my question would be kind of, you know, what's the most common kind of excuse, I guess, you get from people? I mean, I know a lot of people always point to, say, the Middle East and say, well, look at how, you know, how much better things are here. Yes, because we're, we're the Midwest. Mm-hmm. We're, it's wholesome. We got great values. Um, so I can, I can share a piece of that, too, because we want to talk about understanding poverty or economic self-sufficiency, what works, what doesn't work. Well, for us, we wanted to figure out what's it, what does this mean for our kids and what does it mean for specifically with the Women's Fund you know, for girls. So we know that because of our research here, we can say that, yes, it does matter because within a 15-minute radius from the state capitol, more than half of the five-year-old girls that are entering kindergarten with a single head of household as mom, they're living in poverty. So more than half of those kindergarten girls, when you can get an image and understand and ask the question, do you know a kindergarten girl? Do you know a neighbor with a girl? And then you move on to the fact that by eight years old, so imagine an eighth, you know, an eight-year-old, this is about fourth grade, her self-esteem has peaked. That's here in central Ohio. Right. So then we can say, okay, well, nationally, it's about nine or 10 years of age. Self-esteem is peaking. So what the heck is going on with these Midwest values in central Ohio, in our neighborhoods, where we can figure out and picture a girl, whether it's a niece, a neighbor or somebody and say, oh, my gosh, I can see it happening. I know exactly what was going on in fourth grade with that girl. So we want to make it as personal of a connection as possible, because that's where you create the urgency to care and therefore want to change it. You know, before we jump into even more 
on that topic, I think we should jump back and kind of talk about your background and how you got to be part of the Women's Fund. So you went to school in Minnesota, correct? University I of Minnesota? did. I did. That's home. That's home. Huh? <laughs> yes. so, what, so what did you study in Minnesota? And um, what brought, why did you choose the University of Minnesota? Just because it was sure. home for you? Yeah, that was home. So it would be just like, you know, somebody that was a hometown kid here saying, I'm going to go to the Ohio State University. So I grew up. And that's, you know, it's ended up being a golden gopher. Mm-hmm. Um, so they play Ohio State. Who do you root for now? Uh, neither. Oh, <laughs> yes. that's a good answer. <laughs> neither. New Albany Eagles. So I've got two kids. So I, I keep it real local to the backyard. <laughs> but the kids know that they're Buckeyes. Yes. So mm-hmm. that's they are being raised as Buckeyes. Um, yeah. So went to the University of Minnesota because it was in the backyard. Um, but it was also with the intention and path that they've got a great medical school. And I thought that I was going to do pre-med. Um, and become a pediatrician and help children um, after a few quarters of organic chemistry and realizing, you know what, maybe I'm not so much cut out for that, love the labs, um, but transferred all that knowledge to pharmacology and realized that I can apply it to understanding at-risk, um, high-risk adolescent behavior and understanding what that means for alcohol and drug counseling. So it was still applying the same knowledge because nothing was for waste. And once you have an education, you can't take it away. Um, but there was a curiosity about how do you help kids grow up to be the best that they can be and recognizing that circumstances are not their own. Sometimes it's not their fault. Um, and how do you find a point of disruption? So from there, it was the great opportunity to go into an interview. And I know and this is kind of the point to make, especially with young professionals, is be prepared to answer the question of where do you see yourself in five years? Um, I had interned at what's called a recovery school. So it's a sober high school program for high school students that once they complete alcohol and drug treatment, they can go to a safe, sober high school environment so they're not going back to their using environment where their friends were and focus on getting their, their grades and their credits and hopefully graduate. So went in for an interview and I said I'd like to start my own school because I have ideas how I'd like to change it. And 90 days later, I was opening the sixth recovery school um, mm. in Minnesota. So it happens, and it's a little bizarre and crazy, and that kind of naivete and optimism works to one's advantage when you can. So before you have too much knowledge and information of telling you what can't happen, be prepared for answering that question. So did you get the job then you started the school, or did they say... No, I answered the question, and then they're like, okay, great, Let's. what's your plan? So the second conversation went right into what would you want to do, and how can we make it happen, and we just made it happen. That's so amazing. then they had to fill the other job, though. <laughs> yeah. So you just created a new job. So I just created a whole new job. Yeah. So cool. I was there for three and a half years, then was the director of juvenile drug court system in Wisconsin, and then came here and leveraged the content knowledge to become the director of a social cause marketing campaign at United Way of Central Ohio. Um, so again, don't have a marketing background, but how do you leverage your content expertise and bring to the table, I was a coalition builder. I can bring together a community of, you know, of individuals. And that was a pr- pretty great job. It got me away from the direct service to a greater systems change, which then brings us to the question of how do I get to the Women's Fund, right. is, is that question of how can I make the greatest change and impact, and what is it that I ultimately cared about? And it was everything I was doing I could do for the population that I represented. It didn't have to be just for adolescents that were in recovery or, or addressing alcohol and drug issues. It could be what is our society for women and girls, and how are we showing up? So... You know, it's funny. We just had Robert Hada on, and one of the questions he said every person has to answer was, what problem do you want to solve? Mm. So I think that's really interesting that, you know, you knew which problem, the things you wanted to target. But what drove that interest in community and helping, especially youth, and um, 
kind of helping solve those sort of issues? Has it always been something you wanted to do or when did you realize that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, I don't, it's always been around youth. Like I said, it started off as pediatrics. You know, I'd been babysitting since I was 10, you know, so I'm not sure what it was about and kind of been drawn to understanding that, that there's some, there's still hope and positivity and change that can happen prior to the age of 18, that it's a curiosity of where can you create influence when you're stuck by these guardrails and parameters of being a minor and being a youth that how far can you stretch those boundaries and yet not get snared and have you know ultimate consequences um and then it's it is like that that jungle gym analogy of your career path kind of takes you from one thing to the next to another and what evolved from content expertise of addressing adolescent issues really was like oh it's coalition building, it's you know messaging, it's branding, it's marketing, it's, oh, I actually care about this issue of a population that I can represent. So it became just personal and I just had my daughter, um, but I was also in a sorority. Um, it was recognizing that when somebody asked me, it was actually six months after I was at the Women's Fund. So you're a feminist? It's like, we won't, we can or cannot unpack that word if we want to, but I was even taken aback and went, never identified myself that way. And in hindsight and reflection, I went, oh, I grew up what I now claim as a privileged feminist. I grew up playing sports. My mom was the treasurer of the softball league. You know, I was an umpire. All the principals and school administrators just happened to be women in the school district I grew up in. So I grew up in a very positive environment that appeared to be gender equal. And then I realized in this world, like, oh, that's not the norm. Mm -hmm. That's not how it is for everybody else. So what is that unique responsibility that I can parlay into a profession that I care about this and why can't everybody have that same experience? It's interesting that you asked that question because the day after you guys had your most recent event, Lacey sent me an email and asked me, um, or maybe it was a text message, do you consider yourself a feminist? Mm. And I said, I've never once thought to think and ask myself that question. And it's similar to, um, we had a close friend of ours who came out of the closet a while back, a gay male athlete. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know, I never really thought about like, gay rights or like women's rights or things like that because they don't affect me personally and I'm just mm -hmm. so much focused on my own life and I would never fight against them but it's one of those things where it's like would you fight for them though and you really don't think about it till you you sit down in an event like you guys had and then you mm -hmm. really sit and see how it affects other people so it's interesting to me to think how you know the things that really don't affect you personally you don't really take into account as much so it's an right. interesting concept because how do you whatever you see is what you continue to perpetuate or believe. And like you said, you're not going to fight against it because there's still a, a human right of what you believe is the right thing to do, how you treat other individuals. But how do you align or identify yourself until it touches you personally, which goes back to why we want to do the data and the research, um, to personalize it as much as possible, to find that dotted line connection to your own story with whatever you want to touch. Um, so our most recent research addresses just that. Um, so we, we were talking about and again, it's a phrase that I never use in my regular mainstream lexicon, but to how do we acknowledge what what is the social norm placed on gender and how is there a value that is placed on being boy or girl, man or woman? And it is those things that just keep getting perpetuated. It's just what it is. We just accept them as the way that they are until we have some sort of you know, consciousness awakened in us that we have an implicitness inside us. You know, So using the phrase, it's an implicit bias that we all walk around with them. It's just what what happens. Either you have been intentionally taught, told, or behave a certain way, or it's just the the messages that are around us that we take on without permission. Um, 
you know, it's that phrase to you say to a boy or anybody else that it's like, you know, don't throw like a girl or you throw like a girl and you say it to a boy and somehow they're already hearing, oh, that's not okay. <laughs> There's something wrong with that. That means that I need to be bigger, better, stronger, tougher, faster, something, but don't be a girl. But the girl is hearing, oh, I guess I'm not as strong or fast or as good as, and I should be quieter. You know, don't put yourself out there and be stronger or braver or more than the boy next to me. And so how that comes out, going back to your comment of, you know, never really thought about it, is that's what gets perpetuated then. When we don't think about it, how does that then show up in the workplace? And what we see is on performance reviews or in hiring somebody or getting somebody prepped for promotion, what are the words that are used to describe a man or a woman? And what are those words, you know, helping, hindering, or creating a barrier or access to opportunity? So what is driven, goal-oriented, determined, um, when that's attached to a female or a woman can be, oh, well, they're not quite collaborative enough. Can they be a consensus builder? But for the man in the workplace, it's they are so ready for that promotion. They're going to drive this company or this department. They're going to have leadership. So it's what is the gender affiliation to those words and those descriptions. Until you stop and think about it, you're like, yeah, I guess I do use different words. Um, you know, I think mm -hmm. about, you know, even with my kids and their handwriting or something. You know, my son's got fantastic handwriting. My daughter, not so much. If it was reversed, would I even be making that observation? Probably not. Right? Right. It's, right? I mean, we assume my right. daughter should have pretty handwriting. Boys are supposed to have ugly handwriting. Right. 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 It's, Chicken scratch. Right. Exactly. And, and, and you know, it's, I think the hardest part about that, in, with implicit bias, I mean, just by its very nature, you know, you don't notice it until someone points it out to you. So it's hard, really hard to sit there and think about your own implicit biases because you don't know them. Right. You, know, you don't. You'll never be aware of it until someone points it out to you, which yeah. I've always had. I've always struggled with, you know. I've always kind of like looking to catch myself, but it's it's hard. Yeah. <clears throat> well, just to comment on that, what kind of is interesting to me about that concept is that so it's probably rooted in the way that you were raised, and then it's rooted in the way that your parents were. So you have all this implicity building up over the years, and it's almost rooted hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So where do you guys start to really try to make that change? I mean, does it start at the grassroots when they're – little when we have children and things like that in schools or can it be changed when people are adults and they're older and just making them more conscious yep so our biggest point of entry right now is going in and starting with where is there a place of influence with adults we wish then hope that what we would all share in, in a second is um, a conversation toolkit and we created this product and it, it, it sounds cliche to have a toolkit on how to have a conversation but it allows a conversation it's like um, conversation table cards and it just says, you know, tell an experience of how you describe what it means to be a man. And you list all these words. And then you ask that question, what does it mean to, if there's a man that doesn't act like those words inside the box? What's the social consequence to that? Um, and it gets people there right away to understand what is a gender norm? What is the norm that we place on that? And the fact that we do have these, you know, consequences or interactions of, and thoughts that we have. Um, but that's the easiest way to do it. And, and it's called gender by us. So gender and then B-Y-U-S. So it's a play on words. So gender by us and you can download it. Um, and then there's the hashtag to follow and there's conversations that have launched in the last 60 days. And um, 
you know, it's an easy way to do it. Anybody can do it without having a facilitator. Um, and what we have found is that people will have it over, you know, even drinks at their house, almost like game night. Mm -hmm. You know, when have you had a bias that you've realized? And it, we recognize that we're a bit of a social experiment when we all work at the Women's Fund because we get to call out our bias and go, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I totally have a bias against or about or for, you know, this. And we get to practice it. And when we have other people come into our office space, it's, yeah, once you can call it out, just this morning I had a conversation with. Um, and what we're doing is reaching out to law firms because they are the one industry that is the highest in the pay discrepancy in central Ohio. So we can take our, our research to law firms and say, hey, according to this, the compensation discrepancy between men and women is the greatest amongst law firms. Why don't you have a conversation? What are your hiring practices? What is your promotion practice? How do you know when somebody's ready to be partner? How many times does a female attorney need to prove herself versus a male attorney in order to be ready for partner? And we just want there to be what we say is just ask the question. Just ask the question, see what happens. Definitely. And, you know, I think when you talk about pay discrepancy, too, I've always heard, you know, the counter argument to the pay discrepancy is always, well, you know, guys are just more aggressive. They ask for a raise more frequently. They're more um, prone to negotiate. But what I never hear people ask is why that is. Mm -hmm. Right. And, that, and there's a bias right there. There's an implicit bias you see right there is talking about men being more aggressive, men being more uh What's the word I'm looking for? Confident, willing mm -hmm. to go in there and negotiate. So, you know, the I guess, would you say, you know, counter argument to that would be, well, hey, let's figure out why that is, even if that is true. Absolutely. You are spot on. And then the counter argument would be, what happens when women behave that way? Mm -hmm. Right. There are the, There is a consequence to it. Um, and how much harder do women have to work then to prove that they are ready for the, to, in order to go in and have the confidence to negotiate? Because there's true, that's the whole like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, go ahead, you know, women should just be more confident. Just You just should. And it's like, well, they're not. Okay, mm -hmm. so why is that? And we recognize that in, in conversations, you know, men speak more often or they will repeat or speak over women. So then women, they go, well, then why should I even speak? And to, to your comment of over time, that gets perpetuated. So whether it's, you know, we kind of come with that DNA to begin with over the decades and the centuries, or it's through the personal experience that, okay, you're bigger, louder, so you're going to get heard. And so how do I work around it? Um, it's the same thing that women are most likely not going to apply for a position unless they have seven out of the 10 job description criteria met. Yes, I can do seven out of the 10. For men, it's, I can do three out of the 10. It's the exact inverse. Like, I'll figure it out. That's why I have to go for the job. It's a new job. Why, if I, why would I do a job I already know how to do? Women think, I can't go for the job unless I know I can do it. So let's kind of jump back and talk a little bit about um, how the organization is set up and some of the big initiatives that each branch that you guys are working on. Sure. So this research piece is big for us because we now have something to mobilize the conversation around the research because otherwise it's just research for research's sake and we can talk about it all we want, but now there's an action item. So the call to action is everybody have a conversation, right? So it's super easy. Um, the next piece would be that we have... Um, all of our advocacy initiatives and platforms. So whether it's equal pay, um, understanding what a livable wage is in central Ohio. And while we'd like to say we want to increase minimum wage, adding a dollar to minimum wage isn't going to create economic security in this community. But for us, we want to acknowledge the fact that two thirds of minimum wage workers are women. 
So it goes back to if we don't look at the issues of poverty in our community without the gender lens, we'll continue to perpetuate the issue of poverty. So why is that? And that some of that then is driven to um, elevating understanding access to childcare because the majority of employees being both minimum wage or primary household as a single parent are going to be moms of children of two or three children. So it's like we have to have just for our workforce development. We need to have access to childcare, and we have to have an understanding of employment. And then because of transiency of our kids in school, parents, moms are relocating, going to the job. And so the kids are getting taken out of one school and school hopping to another, or they're having to take a bus. And so and that's not setting them up for long-term success to be great students in school. Um, so that's our advocacy. And then from a programming side, Last month, we had a women in philanthropy program. And the idea behind that is understanding that women do have great influence over finances. So the majority of consumer products are bought by and decided by the woman in the household. Um, <laughs> and on top of that, prior to 35 years ago, you would never see a woman's name on a donor list. You won't see a woman's name on the side of a building built prior to 35 years ago. Women just didn't associate with money. And so that was right around the time that the Ms. Foundation founded by Gloria Steinem came to be. And that's like the, the initial and original women's fund. So for us, we want to say that that's a form of leadership when you can contribute back both your time and your talent and volunteering, but also your treasure. That can influence how you create change in your society and your community by investing in the change and expediting it to create it to happen. So that's one of my favorite topics is to talk about philanthropy as a form of leadership and changing your culture and your environment. Um, and then fast forwarding, we're going to go to uh, February, we'll have a state house day uh, where we will elevate and um, the conversation around why it matters to vote, why it matters to take action, find what you care about and a problem that you want to solve. And how do you take action around it? How do you practice using your voice and saying, yeah, I do care about this. You know what? I do have a friend that you know, explains something to me that I care about this issue. I didn't before, but now I do. How do I practice? Um, and we're, we'll soon announce who our, our luncheon speaker is, but she's a, a national former elected official, and she'll be coming to town and talking about her efforts um, to inspire change. Like, if you can live a life of values and, and make change in your community. So speaking of change in the community, you know, you talked about a few of the things you're researching. Maybe we can go, you know, kind of into some of the statistics on some of the research you guys have been doing recently. And... Uh, talk about what we're seeing, you know, locally versus nationally and uh, the things we can do to impact our community here in Ohio. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of answer, I know. But yeah, <laughs> um, I think start with the statistics, right? Yeah. So we mentioned a couple of the statistics already, but let's start with understanding that um, economic security is an issue for women. Um, nationally, it's one in three women are not economically secure. Locally, or excuse me, it's one in, yeah, nationally it's one in three, locally it's one in four. So it's not as bad, um, but it's still not great. Um, again, nationally, 77 cents on the dollar if we're going to talk about equal pay, and that's an average. Um, so when we talk about understanding an average, so white women do make more on the dollar, but it's only pennies more. And African-American women, it's going to be 64 cents. Latino women, it's going to be 59 cents. So this is another conversation where we can talk about equal pay, and it can be you know, defended and ripped apart and, and looked at in a lot of different ways. But the, the truth of that whole piece is, there is a portion of whatever the sense is that is not equal pay. And the White House Council has come out of economic advisors has come out and said that there's a 41% proof that nothing can be explained away out of taking time out to have a child, lack of promotion, industry choice, didn't ask for the raise. 
41% can be undeniably proven to nothing but a bias, um, where there was not a promotion provided when there was equal opportunity. Um, and then the other piece, and you know, in part to that is recognizing that we've got 80% of our U.S. Congress is men. So we've got 51% of the population is female. Um, so we don't have equal representation there. And why is that? We perpetuate what we see, right? So we have a lot of white men, and that's what we see. That's what we know, and that is the majority of the population. And the more that we can show that, okay, women actually are 51% of the population, how is there not equal representation? What can we do to change that? Um, we've got five of, you know, five percent of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women. So what can we do to change the business climate and culture? We've got less than 20 percent of C-suite individuals are are women in Central Ohio. So again, we're nowhere near even 50 percent. But on the flip side, what we know is that it only takes three. You put three women on a corporate board. You put three women in a leadership executive position, and you immediately have higher returns on profits in businesses. You have higher employee retention because workplace policies end up changing. And then there's higher employee engagement because they become philanthropically engaged in the community. And then therefore that also ends up being philanthropic investments more than double um, by almost $2 million, depending on the ratio of the company, um, which then brings back more consumer driving by using philanthropy as a form of marketing. So there's a benefit and all it takes is three. So we don't even need half. We need three. <laughs> My team doesn't like when I say that. Like, right. we want equality. Half, but I'm just but like, just give us three. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, but it's the 30%. You know, right. at 30%, there's a tipping point. At 30%, you have a brand marketing message that is saturated. You just have to go for 30%. Interesting. And, you know, I, I, it was funny. I was thinking about it when you said that, you know, not equal representation in Congress. And I thought for a minute, I said, wasn't there a war started about that at one point? I mean, that was the whole reason that the United States revolted was because against Britain was because we had, you know, no taxation without equal representation. They were frustrated that they weren't being represented equally. Right. So it's it's kind of funny that our country was started on that, but we're still struggling with it here today. We're still struggling with it. And, you know, the big thing for me, too, is recognizing that how does that happen and going back to where does it begin and the perpetuation of it? We can echo these statistics locally, but nationally, we know, um, as we were sharing earlier, that what is it, 52% of our girls have experienced academic sexism. What does that mean? What does that look like? So I talked about, you know, the five-year-old girl, the eight-year-old girl's self-esteem peaking. By eighth grade, I know that our girls in Central Ohio, the majority of them are experiencing um, the academic sexism, meaning that when they're taking a math class and they're struggling, more than likely the teacher will say to them, that's okay, this is your last math requirement. Her counterpart in the, in the aisle next to her is a boy, and he's struggling, and it's, hey, that's okay, we're going to figure this out. You know, you've still got four more years of school. You've still got four more classes, you know, four more years of math to take. And while this young eighth-grade girl probably was struggling at algebra two, might be a rock star at geometry, but we've just sent her the message that she's not so smart in math. This is her last math class. So now we've disrupted the trajectory of her and her prerequisites getting into college and potentially getting into a STEM field, which is one of the highest paying industries, all by eighth grade. So we talked about athletic sexism. So 76%, that's the whole you throw like a girl or you're not strong enough or who do you think you are? Um, and then sadly, what we also know is that 90% of girls by the time they graduate will experience some sort of sexual harassment. And that commentary really just goes back to, like, well, that's just the way that it is. We should just accept that there will be messages sent, there's media, there's marketing, there's comments that they're going to hear in the hallway. It happens. 
and or actual the physical assault that goes with that, which is the the extra unfortunate piece of that story. So what can some people in Central Ohio community do to help contribute towards changing all of these different statistics? Um, one, accept that they're real. <laughs> and I think pay attention to them. You know, I really come from a place of just raise and elevate consciousness. Just be open to, like, rather than saying that, oh, that doesn't happen here. Oh, that's someplace else. Ask the question. If you've got young children in your house, you can ask them those questions. You know, what are, what are what do your teachers say? You know, I was hearing my son's, you know, football coach say, you know, commentary from the sidelines, and this was, you know, when he was seven years old. And I was like, these messages that my seven-year-old is hearing does not need, one, not appropriate for a seven-year-old to be saying, you know, psych out your... Um, you know, your opponent and embarrass him because his girlfriend's, you know, on the sideline. And I'm thinking, okay, first of all, seven-year-old boys aren't thinking about having a girlfriend. (laughs) You know, second of all, when did we say that, like, when do you overcome strategy and being, you know, physically nimble and it's about embarrassing your opponent? So it's like, look, we've kind of lost sight of, like, what is the true intention of any and all of our behavior? And recognizing, like, and how can we stop ourselves and say, how often do we say, oh, you look pretty or you should smile more to to our girls? When we never comment, most likely, about how does your son look. You Mike know? never tells me I look pretty. He doesn't. It's devastating. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you think he's joking, but he actually wishes I would. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, so raising that awareness is honestly my call to action to everybody just to pay attention to it and, and like, conjure up that implicit bias that you have and just say, gosh, you know, I never thought about it that way. And, and then obviously, you know, let's vote, vote in local elections, because that's what drives national elections. So regardless of what you believe in, figure that out, understand what your values are, and then vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unbelievable to me, you know, and I think it's probably just because my dad was a political science major in mm. Marine for 21 years. So we were very heavy on the voting and make sure you do your civic duty, that sort of thing. Absolutely. But I, you know, I've never understood when people say, well, I just don't think I'm going to vote. It's that I don't, you know, I just don't care. And I'm like, how can you not care? I guess, you know, if you, you really want to look into it, you have to see how, like, to understand how important it is, you have to do your research. Yes. That's what I think. So go out. I, I encourage everybody to go out and just read as much as you can. Yes. I think there is a line there, too, where there, there's some people who don't feel like they're knowledgeable enough to to make a decision. And you almost feel like making no decision is better than making a decision towards the wrong direction that you didn't know enough about. So... I think there's a responsibility there to go out and, and teach yourself because mm-hmm. this is, I mean, you're a U.S. citizen. This is the country you're going to live in. But, I mean, you know, there's almost, it could probably be a whole other conversation where we're so busy on a daily basis. Where do you find two hours to dive into political issues that maybe you can't understand in the first place? So is, is there any, I guess, a question out of that, is there any places to really go to, yep. go to you guys to learn more about yep. that? By way of us, you can reach out to um, League of Women Voters is one of our grant partners. And what we're most excited about with their grant this year is they have decided to go out and recruit and identify 18, 1,000 18-year-old girls, or that will be 18 um, by November, and get them registered to vote, inform them on the issues, and it's completely nonpartisan. But then the idea is that they're totally engaged, and then they will be identified for a mentor to see of those 1,000 who might also be interested in elected official um, you know, pathways. And it might be as a campaign manager, it might be to run for office someday. But the more that we can, you know, tap into an educated, a younger age, so whether that's League of Women Voters, or just start talking about the issues, 
you know, there's there's a lot of different, you know, websites that you can go to, but that to me is a great source right away and they simplify it and it's local. Awesome. So for the future of the Women's Fund, what does that kind of look like? Any big things on the horizon for you guys? And uh, what does the future look like for Nicole Dunn? Oh, goodness. Two great questions. Um, the future for the Women's Fund, recognizing that we're 15 years old, we are beyond where we thought we were going to be even five years ago. Now that we've added the advocacy and the research arm to really drive systemic change, um, I will, I'm curious in my own way as I sit there and go, gosh, I'm really curious because I can see a vision that's out there. But... Um, the way this community can rally and the role that we continue to play to say we want to mobilize this community in a way that um, engages people from the awareness side of the bridge all the way to activism. There's a place, you know, to just to say, just show up and care. Um, so we'll just keep pushing and, and pulling and compelling and convening this community. Most importantly is integrating men into our conversation. Because what we also know is that of our research that women more than men have a bias of women being more the caretaker and men associated with career than men do. So while it's great for us to say men have a lot to learn too, which we, we all recognize and that needs to be the case, women have to recognize this but also have the conversation with men. So the future holds that it's just not gets, it will always be the women's fund, but it won't just be women having the conversation. Absolutely. And what's the future look like for you? For me, mm -hmm. I hope to continue to drive the conversation of consciousness and awareness, um, specifically with the lens of recognizing the role that women can have with leadership. Mm -hmm. So that's it's important. Women need to understand that you can create a place of influence at whatever seat or table job title hierarchy that you have you can start right where you are and create the world that you want to live in and influence it from an arm's length and have it ripple out from there. So that was such a concrete answer and it kind of sparked a thought in my head like you meet someone who's leading causes that are worthy and then you ask them you know what does the future look like for you and they have a concrete vision like that and you meet someone who you know I mean maybe is successful but not necessarily like as successful they could be and they really don't know. Do you think having such a clear vision has really helped you get to where you are today? Um, I'm going to say no. <laughs> Oh, wow, we're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> Josh's question is terrible. Yeah, switch that Oh, out. no. And the reason that I find comfort in telling you no is because it was, um, <laughs> I'm a longtime you know, watcher of Oprah Winfrey, and she was one of the first people that said, I don't set goals because it can be limiting. So there was more, what you heard in my, my response is more of what, is, what are the values that I continue to articulate and where is my lane? and recognizing that I can continue to hone and polish what I care about most and where I can make the most significant difference. Because I think early on it's, oh, I can do this and I can do that. And, you know, it has to do with kids. Okay, it has to do with high-risk adolescents. And eventually it was recognizing, like, wow, you know what? There is a place to just really get grounded and come from a place of dignity to connect with people. What I care about most can be transferable to many individuals, but mostly it's recognizing that, the more that women can step into that role, and therefore I have to. So it's it's a reciprocity of articulation is where the clarity came from. But there's clarity on values. I got to recover clarity myself some here. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Clarity and recognition. I'll take that. Live with clarity, purpose. values, and values. Yes. That's all. Absolutely. That's all yes. that I needed. Just a little something. <laughs> and then um, I guess one of the questions I I have in my head is: there any advice you have for our listeners out there? And um, just for some background, we got everything from you know men, women. 
from 19 to, you know, 45, 50, even, you know, some over, um, but mostly in the, you know, younger professional group. Do you have any advice for them? Well, we're going to be an echo here and just say, you know, figure out what you care about. And as you live each day, does your personal brand reflect that? Would people describe you as those things that you care about? So if I care about being um, compelling and motivating and co operating from a model of abundance, find what's great and make more happen, would other people describe me that way? And ask yourself, how are you being described? And if it doesn't match with who you want to become, what can you do each day to work towards that? That's awesome. That's awesome. That's I love that. Yep. And then, uh, you know, I think we're getting kind of towards the end here, but we want to ask one question that we always ask all our listeners now. It's uh, the theme of Conquering Columbus, our podcast, is live uncomfortably. Mm -hmm. And um, we feel that, you know, living uncomfortably is key to uh, finding success in life and uh, be just becoming a better person. So um, what do you think of that phrase? And how have you lived uncomfortably in your lifetime? Yes. It's getting right. It's getting comfortable with the discomfort because that means that you're growing and changing. And I think it's important to recognize that in discomfort, is it because you are being held back and have to overcome something or because you're on the edge and you've never been there before and the future and the next step is unknown so that the butterflies in the stomach. My mom always said, you know, like it, when you're nervous, the butterflies are there to remind you that they're, they're, they're there to be your friend, that, the, that this is a moment that matters. And if it didn't matter, it wouldn't be uncomfortable, right? So if you're going to take that big leap, it's going to matter because you want to look back on it and say, yeah, I got through that. Um, so whether it was yeah, relocating and changing my name, not having any professional you know, reputation, you know, there was that piece of it. At um, you know, 33, becoming president CEO of the Women's Fund and going, what the heck did I just do? I'm not from this community. You know, who was I to say that I could run a high school program for adolescents in recovery because I'm not in recovery. I wasn't a parent. Um, and yet figuring out what do I have to bring to the table and coming from that place. Um, there's comfort and discomfort if you recognize like what's going to come out on the other side. That's great. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today, Nicole. We had a great time, and uh, I think that was an awesome episode, and our listeners will get a lot out of it. And right. if there's anything that we can ever do to help out with the Women's Fund or anything you have going on, don't hesitate to let us know. Terrific. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I appreciate absolutely. it. Thanks a lot, Nicole. We appreciate it, too. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. If you want to learn more about Nicole and the Women's Fund and all the things they're doing, or anything else we talked about in this episode, including gender bias, we'll have it all linked up in the show notes. If you like this episode, please rate us on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, all sorts of social media. You can also head over and check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash Conquering Columbus. And there you can give small monthly donations and you get cool rewards for different levels of donating. So please go check it out. want to give one last big shout out to our sponsors over at AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked up in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. We'll talk to you guys next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. 
yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.